The question that I really want to focus on is what happens when things go awry? We've spoken now a couple weeks about Oral Torah and how Moshe gave us the Oral Torah and it was passed down from generation to generation. Ultimately, it was written down and then it was passed down from generation to generation and various different elements of the Oral Torah were written down uh, over the generations. And, you know, there's the... Beneath the surface, there's this question that we've been, we've asked, we've hinted at uh, on, a, on a major scale, and now we're going to talk about it even on a more minor scale, and that is what happens when things go wrong. The Almighty is perfect. The Almighty's Torah is perfect. Us, humans, we're fallible. Now, of course, you know, we've had great Jews and great leaders that were close to infallible. Uh, but the Torah was given to us in our hands. And we've spoken about over the various uh, weeks that we've been gathered here about the various different ordinances and safety measures that are in place to make sure that even if there are mistakes, those mistakes maybe are isolated and won't affect the nation and the Torah and the oral Torah. Uh, but my question that I want to focus on specifically is what happens when there is a sort of disagreement? How do we extricate ourselves from a machlokas, a disagreement, either as because two people think differently about a certain issue, or because two people, you know, study from their teacher, and this whatever whatever reason, there's an argument. There's a very interesting Gemara just to kick us off here uh, in Timur on the page sixteen. The Gemara here says that when Moshe died, after Moshe died, there was a terrible tragedy that happened. That in the days of mourning of Moshe, so whatever, whatever that was, the Shiva or the thirty days, whatever it was there was a widespread forgetting of Torah. How so, says the Gemara? In the days of the morning of Moshe, there were 3,000 laws that were forgotten. Now, what the nature of these 3,000 laws are, we don't know. Uh, there is one other opinion that says that it wasn't 3,000, it was 300. If you are more familiar with Talmud talk, you know that whenever it says 300 or 3,000, it's always a big number. It's not a precise number. There's countless examples where it's, when there's a big number, the way they round it up is, uh, is 300 or 3,000. Put that aside. But either way, it means there was, there was forgetting of Torah. And that's not as important to us right now as, well, what happened when there is a forgetting of Torah? How do we reclaim that Torah? Or how do we clarify Torah when there's a disagreement? So they said to Joshua, who's now the new leader of the people, Fresh new leader in the fresh tragedy. What do you do? A crisis. They say to him, Joshua, you're a prophet. Do what prophets do. Talk to God and clarify it and remind us of these laws. And what does he respond? Oh, millions. Millions. Yes. Of course, there's 613 general categories. But each one of them could splinters off into, into thousands of laws. So they asked Joshua the most reasonable thing to do and that is, ask God. Simple, right? That's what you should do. You're a prophet. And what does he say? He quotes the verse in Deuteronomy, Lo bashamayim he. The Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is here. It's our Torah. And we have to deal with it as humans. And we're not going to ask God to intervene. So the aftermath of that story is that they eventually got it back. They got back the Torah. How they got it back? Separate question. But what's really interesting is that when there's a disagreement, a mistake, or an argument, it's on us to try to find it or to try to reconcile it. And that's what I want to kind of zone in here a little bit. Now, just as a another quick introduction, it's very important to realize that if you open Talmud, you see arguments all over the place. You know, this rabbi says that, that sage says that, that scholar says that. It has to be clear that of the millions of laws that we have in Judaism, Less than one percent, is there any you know of those laws uh, can an argument be found in? It's so minuscule, it's so infinitesimally small compared to the vast breadth of the Torah. Right? Yes, there's a lot of arguments, but percentage-wise, it's 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 minuscule, it's tiny, and it's certainly not in any one of these categories. You don't have in any one of the six hundred thirteen categories of laws, you don't have any disagreements. None, zero. What you might have is classification of laws, for example. What law is a central category and what's a subcategory? A lot of disagreements about that. But also, these laws, they splinter out 
they branch out into many, many different categories of subcategories of laws, and the further away you get, the more likely you are to have a disagreement. But in central aspects of the religion, nothing. 99.9% of the laws, no disagreement whatsoever. But there is still realms of disagreement. So, they had that problem, and they said, Joshua, ask God, and Joshua says, no, it's not in the heavens, we have to figure out and grapple with this ourselves. And in fact, the Rambam tells us, and this is the Rambam from his introduction to Mishnah, if you want to get a good sense of Torah at large, I would advise you to read the Rambam's introduction to Mishnah, because he goes through a whole host of different aspects and elements of Torah. But he says like this, he says, prophecy does not help to understand Torah, to explain Torah, to teach Torah, to perpetuate Torah. The way Joshua studied Torah, and the way Pinchas studies Torah, is the same way Ravina and Ravashi, the, the authors of the Talmud, way after prophecy has ended, study Torah. Torah is given to us as humans. Prophecy is a human connecting to the spiritual realms. That's not the way we have Torah. Torah is not in the heavens. Torah is here, and we have to grapple with our own intellect and understanding and the methods that we are given to try uh, to, to, to deal with situations that may arise. Now, what are these institutions that we have to ensure that no mistakes happen? By the way, we're edging closer to our central idea that I want to talk about. So, we read a couple of weeks ago in the Parsha about the Sanhedrin. Moshe appoints a body of 70 scholars plus Moshe, so that's 71, that they are the central legislative body of the people. And their goal is preservation of oral Torah. In fact, the Rambam, when he talks about the Sanhedrin, he says something, a strange line. He says, the Sanhedrin is the oral Torah. Why? What's oral Torah? Oral Torah is teaching what Moshe gave us. Well, who, who, who's in charge of that? It's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the oral Torah. It is a fixed institution that was Moshe established and outlasted prophets and outlasted temples, and outlasted kings, and outlasted Jewish sovereignty in Israel, and it was in existence for roughly 1,700 years. It was the last institution of central authority of the Jewish people uh, to be disbanded. And their response, they were the guardians of the Torah, and in fact, if you were to read about the, the Torah itself, talks about, we're reading in a couple of weeks, uh, in, in the Torah where it talks about their role. So I'm going to read to you here from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And it says as follows, when you, uh, when a law vanishes from you, you have a disagreement between this blood and that blood, between this law and that law, between this affliction and that affliction, words of argument in your courts, you should get up and go to Jerusalem and come to the priests or the Levium and to the judges that will be in that day, right? that generation's Sanhedrin, and you should derive and deduce, and they will tell you the law. And you shall do as per the word that they tell you from that place, from Jerusalem, that the Almighty chooses, and you should guard to do it exactly the way they instruct you, as per the instruction that they give you, and the law that they tell you, you should do. You should not deviate from what they tell you, not right and not left. The Sanhedrin here is given tremendous autonomy and authority because they're the ones, they're the body, not prophets. They're the body, the Sanhedrin. Right? The methods that they employ are the ones, they're the ones to decide uh, oral Torah. In fact, if you actually read that verse slowly, you'll notice that there's two separate mitzvahs that we are given with regard to the Sanhedrin. Number one, we're told to do like they instruct us. There's a mitzvah out of 613 mitzvahs. One of them is Sanhedrin gives us a law, we do it. Which is, by the way, we're on a separate topic, but rabbinic law. Rabbinic law primarily comes from the Sanhedrin. In essence, every rabbinic law is also part of this law. Right? This is in the Torah. This is in Deuteronomy. This is not some rabbis coming and inventing something later. In Deuteronomy it says that when the rabbis tell you to do something, you have to, you're biblically mandated to do it. So they tell you to light Shabbos candles. In essence, it's as if the Almighty told you to light Shabbos candles. So the Almighty tells, listen to them, and they tell you to light Shabbos candles. So that's a rabbinic law, yes, 
but it has the same weight of a Torah law. Why? Because the Torah says you have to listen to them. Not only that, so there's a positive uh, element to our responsibility to listen to Sanhedrin, there's also a negative element, and it says as follows, do not deviate from what they tell you, not right and not left. When the Sanhedrin gives a ruling, we're obligated to listen to them, and we are commanded to not transgress what they say. Very, very broad powers that the Sanhedrin has. Now, what would happen? The Ram gives us an illustration of what would happen. There was no, Saddam says the Sanhedrin is in existence, there's no argument. Why? Anytime there's a disagreement, anytime there was a doubt, it would be easily remedied by the Sanhedrin. How so? A Jew in some far-flown place has a question, has a doubt. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the Torah says. He goes to his rabbi. He goes to his court. And he asks them. And if they know, great. If they don't know, or if they're also confused, well, then them, the, the questionnaire, and the court, or the court's emissary's representative, they go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin comprised of multiple courts. There was a court outside of the temple, there's a court inside the temple, right, inside, further in, and then there was the central court. And in fact, there was 71 justices in the Supreme Court, in the Sanhedrin, but there's actually 140 justices. Why? Because there was 71 leaders plus three sets of 23. So that equals 69 for a total of 140. In the room, there's 140 of the greatest scholars around. But outside of the room, there's another set of courts. So you, you ask your court, if they know, great, you move on. You know the answer. If they don't know, you go to the more minor court that is outside of the temple. If they don't know, well, then they bring it to the Supreme Court. It's almost like what we have today, right? If you have a question, you go to the court. The court doesn't know, they kick it up to the Supreme Court. Now, you go to the Supreme Court and you ask the question and you know they give you the answer. Well, what if they too are not so sure about it? It's not a clear-cut issue. If the matter is not clear by the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, then they study it and they analyze it and they adjudicate it and they give and take and they argue until they all agree, until they clarify the issue and then they give the answer. What if it's also uh, in the Sanhedrin not a clear-cut ruling? They get up and they start counting. They make a vote. And what happens? We follow the majority. Okay, so now this is a set of crucial point, crucial juncture. You have 60, uh, you have 36 justices say one way, 35 justices say the other way. So we follow the 36, right? We follow the majority. Now, if we were spectators, if we're, if we're outsiders, and we're looking at this, we say, Geez, you know, 36 to 35, it's a very slim margin, right? And you know what? We would be right. Because, you know, is it, is it, could it have gone the other way? Could it have swung the other way? Maybe, right? That's what we would think. But what well, this is a critical point. When there is majority, we don't follow the majority because the majority is more likely to be right. That's not why we follow the majority. We follow the majority because the Torah says, Achrei Rabim Lahatos. You follow the majority. Once again, the reason why we follow the majority is not because these 36 is more than 35. The answer is because the Almighty outlined what halacha is. And the Almighty says, you go to this, you go to what, you go to the court, you ask them, and you follow the majority, and that's halacha. Not because they're more likely, of course, of course, if there's a majority, they're more likely, right, of course, if it's 70 to 1, then, you know, even the uninitiated would say, well, it looked like that one guy made a mistake. But this is etched into the Torah. There's a rule. You follow the rules, go to the Sanhedrin, and you follow majority. That is law. And that's by the Torah. And, that, and it's, it's law because the Torah says it's law. Not because it's more likely that there's not a mistake there. Now, I think our, our question is, I guess our initial question is answered. What happens when there's a disagreement? We go to Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin clarifies the issue, and we're done. It's resolved. But what if it's wrong is the question.
let's zoom out here. Let, let, let's take a little pit stop here. What, what are the benefits of, of this system? The reason why is because the Torah, there's a lot of room for ambiguity or disagreement in the Torah or doubts in the Torah. If we don't have a central, unified way of mediating doubts and disagreements, we will have schisms, we'll have sectarianism, we'll have splits, we'll have different factions because, you know, there's room for different ideas. So the Sanhedrin and, and the fact that what Sanhedrin says is final and that's what the Torah says, that is a tremendous boon for our nation's unity. Because when they say, that's it, final, end of story. Okay, now we still have one nation. We still have one, you know, we're, we're still unified as a nation. Now here's a critical point, and this is, I'm, I'm saying something, but I may withdraw it. I want to quote you here something. A tremendously insightful and disturbing statement. This is from the Chinuch. The Chinuch is one of the great uh, medieval commentaries on Torah. He says like this. This might be disturbing, and it might not mean what you think it means, but it might, yes, so... Keep an open mind as much as I may try to close it for you. We're told to follow Sanhedrin. And do not deviate from what the Sanhedrin tells you. Not right and not left. Says the Talmud. Explains the Talmud. What does that mean, not right and not left? If they tell you left is right and right is left, you have to listen to them. It's like the army. The army, you're a soldier, you have a commander, you have an officer, he tells you to do something, you got to follow it. What if they're wrong? He tells you left is right, right is left, right? He's making a mistake, right? Doesn't matter. The Torah says, do not deviate from what they say, not left, not right. Is it possible that what the Torah is telling us, you have to follow them even if they made a mistake, even if they're wrong? They made a mistake, they're wrong. The Torah is saying, you know what? The halacha is you do something that's wrong. And as a, as a matter of truth, I'm reading, reading the word for word here. This is from the Chinah, if you want to look at it. It's, it's mitzvah. He goes in order of mitzvahs. And this is mitzvah number 900, I'm sorry, 496. The tremendous praise of this mitzvah is what they, what our sages taught us. You should not deviate, not right, not left. Even if they tell you that right is left, do not deviate from their instruction. This means, even if they are mistaken in the matter, we should not argue on them. Rather, we have to observe like their mistake. Why? And it's beneficial to have a mistake, have one mistake, but at least we'll be united as a nation. And that's better than everyone acting on their own as per their own intuition. Because if everyone acts on their own, as per their own intuition, we have a destruction of the religion. And the heart of the nation is torn. And the destruction of the people is total. And therefore, the Torah tells us that the understanding of Torah, the interpretation of Torah, is given to the sages of Israel, and we are instructed also that the minority has to follow the opinion of the majority. Okay, so initially, I said this is not going to be easy. This is not an easy topic. We still haven't gotten to the most difficult part of our discussion. So, so I apologize. <laughs> so I just, let me just wrap what he's saying over here. What he seems to be saying here is, let's assume we knew for sure. Let's assume we knew for sure. Let's assume it was possible. So you, so you, so you, you know, Esther's right. Who says they made a mistake, right? How could we know they made a mistake? But they tell us right is left and left is right. Then they clearly made a mistake. What do we do? The Torah tells us, do the mistake. What's the mitzvah? What's my mitzvah? Do a mistake. Sometimes the mitzvah is to do a mistake. That's what the Almighty wants you to do. They might want to do something that's wrong. To do what they tell you, even if they tell you right's left and left's right. That's the rules. That's what the Almighty wants from us. Now I want to throw a little caveat onto this. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to spoil what we're going to get to. I want to throw a little caveat into this. 
Wendy, where's your right arm? Where's your left arm? Right, so point right, point right. Point to the right. I'm gonna point to the right as well. Point to the right? Ooh. Ooh, there's different directions, right? Ooh. What's going on over here? They tell us right is left and left is right. Perhaps what they're telling us here is like this. When they tell you left is right and right is left, they're not telling you a mistake. Rather, they're telling you there's a mistaken direction in perspective. Means right is left and left is right depending on which, which direction you're facing. So maybe, they, maybe this isn't a mistake. Maybe to you it appears like it's a mistake because to you, you're facing the wrong direction. So to you, it's left is right and right is left. But really, you're the one who's making a mistake and the Torah is telling you, follow what you think is a mistake because really, it's not a mistake. This tension of following a mistake, is it legitimately a mistake or is it only in our perspective a mistake? But either way, the bottom line is we have to follow the Sanhedrin. They say do something, we do it. They say do a mistake, we're not allowed to deviate from when they say not right, not left. Uh, what if it's a mistake? I think one way to understand it is yes, let's follow their mistake. We follow their mistake. And we're doing a mistake for the sake of heaven. We're doing, behold, I want to fulfill the will of the Almighty by doing this mistake. And I'm doing the will of the Almighty. That's one way to understand it. Or, perhaps, the mistake is only right and left and left is right. It's only a perspective mistake. No, I'm the one. I'm me, the observer, who is not a great Torah scholar. I'm not like the Sanhedrin. I'm like, they made a mistake. It's so obvious, right? It's right, left, left, right. No, really the mistake may lie with me and not with the Sanhedrin. So, I'm trying to ask you to think of a lot of different things all at once. I want to throw something else in here. This is um, the most famous disagreement that ever came before the Sanhedrin. And what happened? So the Talmud in the book of Babatzi on page 59b is talking about a certain, a certain oven. And the oven was cracked and was patched together. And the question was, is such an oven susceptible of becoming tummy? Now this is a very obscure question. It's a very obscure topic certainly for us. We don't know what tummy, tahar means, pure, impure. Either way, this was the question that came before the Sanhedrin. And one of the rabbis, he's the central figure of our story. His name was Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. And he said that in his opinion, this oven is tahar, it's pure. And the rabbis, they said, no, 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 it is tummy, it is impure. This is the famous case of what's called tanur shal achnai, the the oven of the serpent. How come? Why, just like a serpent goes around something, so too there's a lot of things going on over here. There's many, many issues. And of course, it does have a little bit foreboding, um, ominous uh, ring to it. So what happens? There's an argument. So what happens to the argument? They start, they start arguing, right? Rebel started bringing them all the proofs in the world. Reza, of course, he was in the minority, right? So there the majority of the rabbis say it was Tameh. Rebel says it was Tahar. And what's the halacha? we got to follow the majority. So Rebel starts bringing proof after proof after proof after proof and nothing happens. They didn't accept what he said. And then he did something crazy. He said, I'm going to prove it to you that I'm right. He brought everyone outside. He pointed to a carob tree and he said, if I'm right, let this tree uproot itself and settle somewhere else. And in front of the eyes of all the Sanhedrin, the tree uprooted and it moved 100 or 400 amos away and replanted itself. Pretty impressive trick, don't you think? Looks like he's right, right? Looks like they made a mistake. And they're not at all impressed and they say to him, I'm sorry. Can't bring a proof from a tree. That's inadmissible in a court. Undeterred, he brings them to a river and he tells them, if I'm right, let the river start flowing the opposite direction. And a miracle happens or something happens. And the river that was heading downstream starts heading upstream. And everyone who's there can't believe it. And the rabbis look 
And are they impressed? They're not impressed. I'm saying, sorry, it can't be proof from water. It's not a proof. Inadmissible in a court. Court ruled. It doesn't matter what you say. Uh, of course, he is undeterred and he says, if I'm right and this oven is indeed pure, let the walls of this base medrash, let the walls of the house of scholarship start to cave in. And in front of everyone, the walls of the sun, of, of, of the, of the house of scholarship, of the house of justice, start caving in, about to collapse. Meanwhile, as they're about to collapse, another scholar, one of the majority, Rabbi Yehoshua, he starts screaming at the walls, and he tells them, if the rabbis are arguing in Torah, one guy says halacha is like this, and one guy says halacha like that, don't get involved. You have no business in this argument. So the walls, they stopped falling, but they didn't actually go up and back to their erect positions because Rabbi Eliezer is telling them to fall. Rabbi Yeshua is telling them to stand up. So for the rest of time, the walls were all halfway leaning. And in fact, the Talmud says that these walls were famous walls. They never knew where they were. Somewhere in Babylon, there are walls. Maybe they're still around today. Maybe there's some archaeological site that we'll find, hopefully, where the walls of the house of the scholarship are exactly halfway. They're just leaning halfway, kind of uh, suspended in midair. Half on the floor, half in the sky. And lastly, uh, Rabbi Leza pulls out the greatest trick uh, that he has in his repertoire and he says, if the halacha is like me, if I'm right, let the heavens attest to it. And before you know it, there's a booming prophetic voice that says, halacha, why are you arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? Halacha is like him wherever he opens his mouth. And what do they say? They quote the same verse that Joshua quoted many, many centuries prior. Lo he. The Torah is not in the heavens. What does that mean? So they explain, once the Torah was given, a prophetic voice is inadmissible in the court. Rather, what do we do? Because then we were told in the Torah, achre rabim lahatos. We follow the majority. The majority here ruled. And the majority ruled, and that's final. And what does the Torah say? Follow them. What if they made a mistake? Follow them. The fact that in heavens there's something else going on, doesn't matter. It's not in the heavens. The Torah's not in the heavens. The Torah says, the Torah's here, the Torah says, we follow the majority. What's the epilogue to the story? So there's two epilogues. One of the rabbis was going out for a spazir, for a walk. And he found Elijah the prophet. Now Elijah is an interesting character in Jewish literature because Elijah was a prophet who never died. In fact, if you read the story, he went up in a chariot of fire to heaven. He's still alive, but he's in the form of an angel. But in the Talmud's times, periodically people would meet him. So Rabbi Nasson is one of the people who was involved in this whole episode. He met Elijah. And what did he do to meet Elijah? You ask him, what is God doing right now? So he asked Elijah, what's God doing right now? Amar Elijah says to him, the Almighty is happy, is smiling, and he says, my sons triumphed over me. My sons triumphed over me. Nitzchuni bini, nitzchuni bini. Simply put, Rebbe Leezer, he knew what God knew. What he... God's position was like Rabbi Eliezer. And indeed, there was a prophetic voice that announced that it was like Rabbi Eliezer. He was right. But we can supersede God. Why? Because God told us in the Torah that we follow the majority. And indeed, in this isolated law, maybe it's wrong. Maybe God has it in another way. Maybe Rabbi Eliezer is right in God's... If the Torah was in the heaven, Rabbi Eliezer would be right. But the Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is here. And what do the rules say? We follow the majority. And we follow the majority. And that's the halacha. So if I had to ask you a question, what is the law of this? What is the law of this oven? So what would you say? You'd be a very hard question to answer. You would say, well, it depends. Are we in heavens or are we in earth? In heavens, it's tahar, it's pure. On earth, it's impure. And both of those are true. This is the central point that I want to get to. 
What we see here is the multidimensionality of the Torah. Both those statements are true. If I asked you, what's the halacha of this oven? And you said it's pure, you'd be right. If you said it's impure, you'd also be right. And that is a great mystery. It's a tremendous mystery and a very intriguing idea. I think we've earned, you know, after 23 talks on Torah, we've earned the right, maybe we haven't, but we'll say we have earned the right to maybe try to investigate something as dramatic as this idea. So let's, I want to quickly just finish what happened to that story, because the story doesn't end. And in fact, there's a very tragic aftermath of that story with Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer uh, was the Rebbe, the teacher of Rabbi Akiva. In fact, Rabbi Eliezer was one, was one of the greatest scholars of all time. Uh, and he has this beef with the Sanhedrin, and this is right after the temple's destroyed, historically. And the Sanhedrin was the last stand the last uh, office, the last institution of Jewish leadership, and there was a tremendous need to make sure that no one casts any doubts on the legitimacy of the Sanhedrin, because that's the only institution keeping the Jewish people uh, unified, glued together. So what they do immediately that day, they took all of the items that Rebeliezer had declared as tahar, as pure, and they burned them. They made a stand. Not only that, they made a vote. What to do with Rebel Yezer, the renegade? What to do with him? And they decided to excommunicate him, to disenfranchise him. They had to make a stand because if the Sanhedrin's role and dominion and uh, uh, place on the pedestal of leadership of the, Jew, of the Jewish people is not rock solid, the nation could disintegrate. And Rebellion was causing problems with that. And therefore, unless he changes anything, unless he recants, he is disenfranchised. He is excommunicated. What does that mean? It means people can't talk to him. People can't go visit him. People can't sit in his personal domain. Very, very harsh. So what happened? It's like, okay, well, we made that decision. Who's going to go tell Rabbi Eliezer? Rabbi Eliezer, of course, he's summoning, he's moving trees. He's a tremendous power. This is Rabbi Eliezer, one of the greatest scholars of all time. He's able to make the river flow the other opposite direction. What could he do to you? He's able to uproot trees. What could he do to you? He's able to summon heavenly voices. This is a tremendous powerhouse. What's going to be? We're going to send someone to him. Who's going to go? So Rabbi Akiva says, I'm going to go. Why? Because if someone else who is not worthy, who's not quite proper is going to go and inform him of the decision of his colleagues, Rebbe Eliezer may destroy the entire world. He has a power, a potency, uh, a fire to him, so to speak, that if it's not done properly, there's some tremendous, tremendous damage could happen. What did Rebbe do? Rebbe put on black clothing and wrapped themselves in a black talus. And he went to visit Rabbi Eliezer and he sat down four almas away, eight feet away. So Rabbi Eliezer sees a student, Rabbi Tiva, sitting far away from them. And he says, like, what, why is today different than every other day? Like, why, why are you doing this? And he's, Rabbi Tiva tells him, Rabbi, my teacher, it looks like, it appears that your friends, your colleagues, have withdrawn from you. Basically, he kind of tells him in a euphemism that they are separating themselves from you. You're excommunicated. Right away, Rabbi Eliezer ripped his clothing, right? Someone is excommunicated, it's as if they have to go into mourning. He rips his clothing, he takes off his shoes, he sits on the floor. He started crying. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that that day was a terrible day for the world. The stock market tanked, so to speak. What happened? A third of the olives in the world were destroyed. A third of the wheat in the world was destroyed. A third of the barley was destroyed. And lastly, even the dough that was in, that a woman anywhere in the world was needing at that time, was ruined. They further taught that there was a tremendous blow to the world. Every place that Rabbi, that Rabbi Eliezer laid his eyes on 
went up and went up in flames. It was a tremendously horrible and tragic day. Now, I want to just throw a little bit more into this story. Who was the leader of the Sanhedrin at the time? It was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel, his name is. Now, Rabbi Gamliel is the head of Sanhedrin who signed off on the excommunication of Rabbi Eliezer, who, by the way, was a greater Torah scholar than almost anyone there, or maybe even anyone. He, he might have been the greatest Torah scholar of his, of his time. Not only that, Rabbi Gamliel signed off on that, Rabbi Gamliel also happened to be Rabbi Eliezer's brother-in-law. How so? Rabbi Gamliel's sister was married to Rabbi Eliezer. So Rabbi Eliezer is a man of, of tremendous royalty. He's, he's part of the family of, of leadership of the people. He's the greatest Torah scholar. And he was put into excommunication because the Sanhedrin and what they meant is even greater than that. And it's even more vital for the Jewish people. Rabbi Gamliel at that time, says the Gemara, was on a ship. Rabbi Gamliel, because he was also, he was the head of Sanhedrin, but he was also the political leader of the people. And very frequently he would go to Rome to negotiate on the behalf of the Jewish people. So he was on a ship heading to Rome at that time. And the ship started being in wavy water. And Gamliel right away knew that this is because of what he did to start up with Rebeliezer, the greatest Torah scholar of his day. And he tells God, Master of the world, you should know, it's known before you that I did not do this for my own honor. Rather, and not for the honor of my family, rather for your honor and to mitigate and to limit disagreements and machlokas amongst the people. And right away when he said that, the water calmed. What's the aftermath of the story? Um, Rabbi Eliezer's wife recognized that her brother was in tremendous danger because even though he did it for the sake of heaven, Rabbi Gamliel, he, did it, he, he signed off on this excommunication for the sake of heaven, still his pain was real. And if he ever told God about his pain, Rabbi Gamliel would die right away. She knew that. Therefore, every day she made sure that Rabbi Eliezer did not say the Tachanun prayer. The Tachanun prayer is a prayer where someone weeps their heart out to the Almighty. She did not allow him to say it. She stopped him. She said, don't say this today. Don't say this prayer. Don't say this. Every day she made sure she, not, that he wouldn't say that prayer. Because she knew if he said that prayer and you wept his heart out to, to God, her brother's done. Her brother's toast. Her brother's finished. Clearly. One day, she thought it was Rosh Chodesh. And in Rosh Chodesh, you don't say that prayer anyhow. So she did not stop him from saying the prayer. But it turned out it was not Rosh Chodesh. And he said that prayer. She walked in and she sees him saying that prayer. And she says, Ay vey, my brother died. And indeed, an announcement was made that day, that day when Gamliel died. And why? How did she know? Because even though Gamliel was right, and even though he did it not for his honor, not for the honor of his family, but for the honor of God, and even though he did it only to ensure that there would be no machlokas, no disagreements among the Jewish people, Rebeliezer had pain. And his pain is addressable. To cause pain to someone else, even if you're justified, you are on the hook for their pain. Rabbi Gamaliel put Rabbi Lezer in tremendous pain. He may have been justified. He may have been justified. To cause someone else pain means you're on the hook for their pain. No matter what. You're, you're right. You're 100% right. You're justified. You did a mitzvah. If there's pain, you're on the hook for it. And indeed, Rabbi Gamaliel died that day. And Rabbi Lezer would the rest of his life be in... in uh, he would be in excommunication status and only after he died did they revoke the excommunication ban on Rabbi Eliezer. If he would have recanted, if Rabbi Eliezer would have recanted, it seems likely that if Rabbi Eliezer would have recanted, they would have annulled the the ban on him. That's what it seems like. Okay, so I want to ask a question. I may mention this before, I mentioned it again. Who was right? Was Rabbi Eliezer right or was the rabbis right? So it seems likely that Rabbi Eliezer was right. He brought all those proofs. And Rabbi Nassim found Elijah. Elijah said that God said that Rabbi Eliezer was right. But, but the right opinion is to follow the wrong opinion. So that's what it seems. The, the, the majority, the right thing is to follow the majority, even if the majority is wrong. So they did the right thing by doing the wrong thing. That's what it seems likely. But God said that Rabbi Eliezer was right. Rabbi Eliezer brought all those proofs that he was right. Um, and we saw, like the Chinuch says, that sometimes you follow the wrong thing to preserve 
unity. But I think there's a there's a much deeper point here. And I already hinted at it. I want to get into this a little bit more. We have a Torah. The Torah came from the heavens. The Torah preceded the world. The Torah and God are, the Ram tells us, they're almost the same entity. God is God and Torah is God's knowledge. But, says the Rambam, God and his knowledge are not separated, are one and the same. So it's as almost as if when we have Torah, when we engage with Torah, we're engaging with something that's not from our world. It's from God's world. It's something that's linked to God much more than it is to us. So there's this tension that exists between in Torah. On one hand, it's God's Torah. On the other hand, he gave it to us. It's our Torah. And this is why, by the way, this issue is going to be a little bit hard for us to understand. How is it possible that there's two opinions that are in opposition to each other, but are both correct? They're both correct. To us, in our human brain, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's impossible. But let me ask you another question. Is it possible in our human brains for something to exist simultaneously in the past, in the present, and in the future? You can only exist at one point in time. If yesterday is too late, it's, it's right, it's, it's, it's gone. In our human brain, it's contradictory to say something is simultaneously tahor and tameh. Pure and impure. In our human brains, it's contradictory to say that something exists simultaneously yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But, for God, that's, that's God, right? God exists in, you know, in, in, outside of time, and thus, He exists simultaneously at all times. But that doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense how some such a thing could happen. Torah is godly, and therefore, in Torah, something can simultaneously be Tahar and Tameh. And that makes total sense. To us, Tahar is one thing, Tameh is another thing, and they're opposites. In Torah, in its pristine condition, in heavens, in God's mind, so to speak, in Torah, in that form, the, the Torah and the Tameh are actually both present at the same time, and that's not a contradiction. Now, Torah also exists over here, on earth. On earth, we have to choose, it's a Torah or Tameh, it can't be both. It can't, right? Is this Avantar, is it Tameh? Only one can exist, even though both of them could be right. So the, 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 the critical idea that I want to say here is that it's not that there's one right opinion and one wrong opinion, and we're going to follow the wrong opinion because it's right to follow the wrong opinion. No. There's a right opinion, and there's a right opinion, and there's a right opinion to follow the right opinion, even though the other right opinion may be more right or may be right in some other context. Now, the reason why this is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around is because we're, we're, we're delving into a realm of, of thought that doesn't make sense to us because as humans, we cannot exist with opposing things existing in harmony. It doesn't make sense to us. How is it possible, by the way, that God is merciful on one hand and has judgment on the other hand and both of those are from one God to us, those are, those are different, right? We have to separate them. This is judgment, this is mercy, and they're different. God, they exist in harmony, in unison. For us, it doesn't make any sense. But that's because when we have Torah, it's a little bit of an insight into what that's like, what's, what that is like. We study Torah, and we see a facet of Tahar, of purity. We see a facet of impurity, but it's, a, it's, it's one Torah. Yeah, okay, but we have a little peephole, a little window into what God's world is like. We see simultaneously Torah and Tameh existing in harmony. Now, the Torah is not in heavens. We could peek into the heavens, so to speak, to study Torah. But when we apply it, 
we have to follow the rules. The rules say we go follow the majority. The rules say, and not because we're choosing right over wrong, we're choosing right over right. They're both true. But here we have to choose how we're going to behave. Because as when we behave, we behave as humans. Humans can only do tar or tummy. We can't do both. Now, I want to give you guys some examples of this. This is from the Talmud in Erevin. The Talmud tells us like this. It talks about Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is the next generation of, uh, of, of rabbis after that episode of Rabbi Liaz and Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Meir is the next one. And the Talmud testifies about Rabbi Meir. It says like this. This is from Erevin 13b. Rabbi Achan, the name of Rabbi says, It is known before he who said and the world was created. It means it's known before God that there is nobody in the generation of Rabbi Meir who was as great as Rabbi Meir. He was the greatest of his generation. However, why did they not establish the halacha like Rabbi Meir? Because his friends were not able to understand the depths of his knowledge. Why? Because he would say on something that's tame, he would call it tahar and prove it. Something that was tahar, he'd call it tame and prove it as well. Rabbi Meir did something fascinating that to us, like before we walked in here, it's like, well, if it's tame, how could he prove it's tahar? If it's tahar, how can he prove it's tame? That's what he did. Because they're both true in God's world. right? And he was able to understand the, the realm of Tar and Tameh in God's world and bring it down here in this world and prove it. And his friends were stymied by the access that he had into Torah. Example number one. Continues the Gemara. They said, Rabbi Vo, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, said there was one student that Rabbi Meir had whose name was Sumchas. And he would do something even greater than that. What would he do? On every issue, he would say 48 reasons why something should be Tame. And on everything of Tahara, he would bring 48 reasons why it should be Tahar. So he was not only able to prove one way or the other, he would prove it with 48 proofs. Dramatic access to Torah. Continues the Gemara. There was an ancient or an old student in Yavne who would take a sheretz. Sheretz is a, is, is a, is a, is a animal that the Torah says is tummy. It's tummy. And he would prove that it's tahar with 150 proofs. Now, of course, it's, t- it's still tummy, right? It's still tummy, right? You, 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 you could take a pig and try to prove it's kosher. I bring 150 proofs that it's kosher. Is it kosher? Can we eat it? No. You can't. You can't eat a pig, no matter what. But is it possible to prove, to in a certain extent, that in God's world, so to speak, in the Torah that is in the heavens, there is reasons for why it should be kosher? Yeah, that's possible. But the Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is here. The Torah that we observe is a Torah for us. And then a pig can't be kosher because it's not kosher. What if someone brings me proofs? What if someone says, I'll prove to you a, pitch, a, a, a kosher by making this tree pick up and move 150 feet away? Or making this, the, the river go the opposite direction? Or by some sort of heavenly voice? Torah's not in the heavens. In the heavens, maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe you're right. There is some element of purity for a pig. But you know what? We're here. Here, pig's not kosher. What about when you have a disagreement? This is bringing it full circle. The Gemara tells us, Bishamai says one thing, Bishil says another thing, and they argue and they argue and they argue. Who is the halacha follow? Bishilo. How do you know the halacha follows Bishilo? So the Gemara says, for three years, they were arguing who the halacha should follow. Bishil were saying, follow us. Bisham was saying, follow us. They just, they argued. And a prophetic voice announced, Elu va'elu divrei elokim chaim. These and these are both the word of God. Opposites, in God there's unity. They're both true. But halacha follows Beis Hillel. 
And the Gemara says even why it follows itself. But this is an interesting idea. When we have Torah, we study the opinions of, of Beis Shammai. We study the opinions of Beis Hillel. We have to realize that when we're studying the Torah, we're studying God's Torah. It's still in the heavens to a certain extent. Because in the heavens, Beis Shammai has a good argument. Beis Hillel has a good argument. They're both true. But when we bring that down to Halacha, we follow Beis Hillel. There could only be one Halacha. There could be multiple opposing truths, at least from our perspective, opposing truths in the heavens, but Torah's not in the heavens. Here, we follow halacha, and how, how halacha is, is, is reached is by the Sanhedrin. So the Gemara says, why, why they follow him? Follow Hillel because Beis Hillel, they, they, were, they had better midos. Um, they, would, um, they were a little bit more bashful. Uh, not only that, when they would teach, they would always teach the teaching of Beis Shammai first. First they would teach the teaching of Beis Shammai, then they would teach theirs. That's what the Gemara says. Not because they're any more right, necessarily. But halacha is because we got to follow one halacha. Now, I want to read to you here from the Ritva. How is it possible that you have two things, tahar and tammi, right? Kosher, not kosher. Mutter, asr, right? Permissible and prohibited. That are both the word of God. They're opposites. So the answer is, he gives a historical spin to it. When Moshe went up to heaven to get the Torah, the Almighty showed him on every, every issue, every matter, 49 facets for prohibition and 49 facets for permission. Everything was multidimensional. Everything had arguments here and there. They're both true. There's Torah on both sides of the argument in heavens. So he asked the Almighty, well, what do we do? How do we, how do we observe? They're opposites. The Almighty says, this is the matter that's left to the sages of, of Israel of every generation. That whatever they say, that's the halacha. That's the, uh, that's the hachra. That's, that's what we follow. What this means is, the Sanhedrin is in charge not of necessarily determining which argument of Torah is right, rather it's which argument of Torah do we follow, do we observe. Now, how do we get to there? They try to find which one they think is more right. Of course. Which one, which one with their own methods that they employ to try to get there. But when they reach a psak, when they reach halacha, that becomes halacha, not because it's more right or because in heavens that's the halacha. Rather, in heaven, they say, we follow the halacha of the Sanhedrin. You ask God, which one's halacha? God says, don't ask me. Torah's not in the heavens, right? Of course, the Torah is in the heavens. It's still a heavenly Torah. There still is arguments for both sides. But, with regards to halacha, which one we follow, that follows the lead of the Sanhedrin. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit fitting uh, when we when we just, you know, we conclude our discussion about Torah and everything that we've said uh, till now, to really remember, like, the Torah is a Torah of God. The Torah is a Torah from the heavens. It's an access, it's accessing a world that is beyond us. It's a world where today, tomorrow, and yesterday can exist simultaneously. It's a world where pure and impure can be both true. And of course, to us, that's mind-blowing because it's, it's beyond our comprehension. And by studying Torah, we're connecting to God. We're connecting to the infinite via the Torah. Now, Torah's not in the heavens. Does that mean it's not a heavenly Torah? It still is a heavenly Torah. Beshamai and Beshillel, Rabbi Eliezer and the rabbis, any two sages that argue, Rabbi Meir and the people that argue with him, Sumchas and the ones that argue with him, what they, both sides of the argument is Torah. It's both Torah. Torah is infinite. And to access it, we have to try to look at it from every side. And that's how we access the Torah. Now, halacha, that has, that, that's for us to decide. That's in our world's realm. And in our world's realm, we only, we have to fight. Is it Torah? If it's Torah, it can't be Tameh. It's tummy can be tar, and the the body that's in charge of that is the Sanhedrin. Now, 
I think that, you know, we look at, for example, just one application of this, Talmud Bavli, Babylonian Talmud. Babylonian Talmud is different than Jerusalem Talmud. One of the differences is precisely this point. In Babylonian Talmud, you always get the dissenting opinion. Always. And the reason why we study that is because we want to access the heavenly Torah. Right? The Torah still is in the heavens, right? It's still a heavenly Torah. There still is both sides of the argument. There still is a machlokas. And machlokas, it's Torah. And Beishame says it's Torah. Beishillah says it's Torah. It's both Torah. It's pure and it's impure. It's both, they're both true in the heavens. Now, of course, you have to access, you gotta look, you gotta look up a Shammai and access it from that perspective. And look from the sill and access from that, and they, they both are saying good arguments. And sometimes you, 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 you go, you study Talmud and you're like, wait a minute. Both sides make sense. And they're, but it's not possible for them to both make sense. They're mutually exclusive, but they both make sense. When that hits you, you have touched a touch point with a different world. And that's a dramatic experience. In, in the world of physics, advanced physics, physics is an idea of particles existing simultaneously in different places. And it's a fact, and it's a fact that we know is true, but we don't know how it's true. But that is like an, an example of us touching some other world where different rules apply. You study Torah, you Bishaman, they're both true. We can't imagine how they're both true at the same time. But when it comes to giving us halacha, Torah is not in the heavens. We don't follow that realm of Torah where it's where it's in the it's in the heavens. But when we study Talmud Bavli, one of the reasons why we prefer to study Talmud Bavli, Babylonian Talmud over Jerusalem Talmud, is because of this very reason, and because we get an access a, a different realm of Torah where it's God's Torah, and both opinions are both correct from God's perspective, and uh, and that's I think a very very powerful. Uh, experience uh, for us. So in conclusion, to go back to where we started, what if mistakes happen? So clearly there's no, certainly in Talmud, there's no mistakes. Why? Because if from God's perspective, there's 49 arguments for purity, 49 arguments for impurity, and each one of them is substantiated, and they're both Torah, they're both the Word of God. Now, just a quick caveat to that. There are some examples of mistakes. How so? If two rabbis are arguing about the opinion of a, th- of a third rabbi, that happens frequently in the, ta- in the Talmud, one rabbi said something, and then there's a disagreement amongst his students what he said and what he meant, there one of them made a mistake. But when two people are arguing about Torah itself, they're both saying something that's correct. It's both true, it's both Torah. It's both the Word of God. To be clear, the Word of God, right? It's not necessarily the Torah that we're observing here. The Torah is not in the heavens. Loba he. And therefore, if we want to know what the halacha is of Joshua, we forgot halacha, we forgot them. Let's go to heavens and ask, no, Torah is not in the heavens. If I could prove to you that in the heavens they say that pick is kosher, you'll say, sorry, Torah is not in the heavens. It's not in the heavens. The Sanhedrin is a body that was established to give us halacha. You ask God what the halacha is, what will God tell you? Go to the Sanhedrin. That's what I'll tell you. We know. We have the source. The source tells him. Moshe comes and says, what do we do? There's 49 arguments here for Go to the Sanhedrin. That the Torah simultaneously exists as a heavenly Torah and as a worldly Torah. Torah is a touch point of two different worlds. The Almighty gave us a Torah. Think about this. The Almighty gave us a Torah. So, so is it the Almighty's Torah or is it our Torah? Well, it's both. It's simultaneously the Almighty's Torah, and they're both, there's four different arguments uh, uh, to either side of the argument. And that's both Torah. But in our Torah, we have a Sanhedrin to give us halacha. And, and, and if you want to prove from the, what the heavens say, it's not in the heavens. This is a tremendously a deep idea, of course. Uh, it's relevant to our conversation, like we said, because we deal with oral Torah and how it's perpetuated. And of course, the Sanhedrin is the oral Torah. They're, that's what they do. They are the ones who determine halacha. When Rabbi Eliezer and the rabbis were arguing, we, Rabbi Eliezer brought proof from the heavens, and you know what? In a certain respect, he was right. And in the heavens, they agreed with him. And yes, God, they agreed with him, but you know what? If you ask God what the halacha is, not what the Torah is, what the halacha is. The halacha is, not, of course, is part of Torah. But that's, halacha is Torah for humans. 
The Torah is Torah for humans, but also Torah for Torah in the heavens, right? It's still there to a certain degree. The angels still can maybe access it. God certainly has Torah still in the heavens. The Torah is still in the heavens. In the heavens, the halacha is like Rabbi Eliezer. In halacha, the Torah that's given to us here, sorry, we follow the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin says you follow the majority of the Sanhedrin. What they say, that is what the Almighty says is the halacha. And, of course, this is um, a, a very dramatic idea, very hard idea to understand, but we did not get a monolithic Torah that we splintered. We got a godly Torah that is expansive and exhaustive, and that, for us, is still Torah. But halacha follows the majority. I want to read to you guys one quick Talmud here from the book of Chagiga on page 3. And it talks about, it's quoting, it's, it calls the Torah scholars those who gather. Because you're gathering a bunch of different things together. Why are the Torah scholars called those that gather? Because they sit and they study Torah. And these ones say it's impure. Tame. These ones say it's Tahar. It's pure. These ones say it's Asr, it's forbidden. These ones say it's Mutter, it's permitted. These ones say it's Pussel, it's, 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 it's wrong. These ones say it's kosher, it's kosher. Perhaps someone says, how am I going to study Torah? How do you study Torah? There's so much confusion. Tamalomar, that's uh, teaching us, Kulam Nitnumuroa Echad. It was all given from one shepherd, it's from God. And indeed, we are supposed to try to engage with the godly Torah. To see one facet of Tahar, to see another facet of Tommy, to try—that's what we're supposed. We're trying to gather all that together, to take the God's Torah, to bring it down ourselves, to do our own giving of the Torah, so to speak, to access that Torah. We're together all to, to gather all those things together, and to take all that and to try to make sense out of that for us in on planet Earth. And indeed, on on Earth, we can only follow either Bishama or Silly. Halachas like 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 In fact, that, that we know. Tradition tells us that in the future, we will follow Bishamai. We will follow Bishamai. Why? Because there's going to be a time in the future where we are, are indeed following the Torah of the heavens. And we're going to be able to have that multidimensional perspective. And there, you know what? Bishamai was more right, perhaps. And maybe if I would venture to say, if we had to deal with this question of this oven, is a Torah Tamay? We might follow the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer in the heavens. In the heavens? What, what, oven do, what do they say in the heavens about this? They say Tahar. But for us, we have to know that the Sanhedrin, they are the ruling body and they ensure that the Torah made a single, unified religion and that doesn't diminish the Torah. The Torah indeed is multifaceted. But the Sanhedrin ensured that we have a, a unified religion. And in fact, if we are around today as a single solitary religion, we have the Sanhedrin to think. How halacha follows today is, uh, the Ram tells us, is that if there is... So the Talmud and all that's halacha. That includes halacha in it as well. Um, problem is, is there's still a lot of room to run. Like I said, there's millions of laws included in Torah. So the Ram tells us that if something the Gemara, the Gemara... Ends the, ends the story, it's, 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 it's sealed. But, uh, what if there's something that's still, uh, ambiguous? So, if there's something that was accepted by the entire Jewish people, that becomes mandatory halacha. If there's something that was accepted by an entire region of people as halacha, that's what we follow. But if you remember, we actually went through this kind of quickly, we have to follow the leaders of our generations. The halachic leaders of our generations, they're the ones that we follow. The Sanhedrin of, you know, a thousand years after Moses, was that as great as the Sanhedrin a hundred years after Moses? Probably not. But there was still a Sanhedrin. And while the Sanhedrin ended, it doesn't mean that the rabbis and the greatest Torah scholars of the time didn't have the greatest access to Torah and to Torah truth of the time. Of course they did. And thus, we are bound to follow what they say. Now, what if one rabbi says one thing, one rabbi says the other thing? That's the, that's the real question. The real question is, what do you do when you have one rabbi saying one thing, one rabbi saying, one rabbi saying another thing? I mentioned this last week. What do you do when the question of how hot the oven has to be when the bagels are, right? I mentioned this last week. A really obscure question. What happens? You have, 
an oven that was turned on by a Jew, but then it was turned off, and then it was turned back on, but it's still hot from when it was turned on by a Jew. How hot does it have to be to make, to make it that it's all considered as if it was baked by the Jew? Is it 175 degrees? Is it 122 degrees? All those questions are, are questions that we have to grapple with. And, and you know what? That's what a lot of the study scholarship has done today to try to figure out halacha. And it's, 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 it's still a battle. Uh, but the general rules to answer your question is that we follow the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch was accepted by all of Israel. Just like the Ramah says, when something is accepted by all of Israel, it becomes mandatory halacha. The Shulchan Aruch and the compendium uh, uh, or com- com- accompanying work of the Ramah, that became accepted by all of Israel. When that became accepted by all of Israel, that has the status of the Sanhedrin. When, when all of Israel accepts something, that gains the status of the Sanhedrin, that that becomes halacha. What if there's a mistake? We don't ask that question. It doesn't matter. Halacha follows what they say. And indeed, there isn't a mistake. The question is, which right are you going to choose? If you are a rabbi of your community, for example, the Ashkenazi community or the Sephardic community, if something that they accept it, that becomes the halacha for them. Uh, either way, for, for, the, for the small sliver of laws that are unanswered or the new technologies that are uh, particularly vexing where we need, uh, um, we need clarification, you've got to go to your rabbi. Find your rabbi, and he's your guy, and whatever he says is law. Now, of course, it, uh, this goes without saying, if your rabbi does not accept the legitimacy of Torah, then he's not the right guy to find out what the Torah says about something, right? Of course. Right? If, he's not, if he doesn't accept the premise of halacha, then he's not your guy for answering a halacha question. But if he is within the realm of halacha, then you know you find your rabbi, you rabbi your town, rabbi your community, you rabbi the, that, that, that taught you, and whatever he says is halacha for you, and that becomes your halacha uh, as well.